The Wings Over New Zealand show is brought to you in association with the Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum, New Zealand's number one aviation discussion forum online. There you'll find discussion on all aspects of New Zealand aviation, from history to current affairs and thousands of photos covering the Royal New Zealand Air Force, airlines, general aviation, warbird restorations, air show news, sport aviation, home building, gliding, aviation media and much, much more. You'll be in good company with other aviation enthusiasts, including pilots, engineers, warbird owners and restorers, historians and authors, modelers, aviation photographers and many others. Sign up to the Wings Over New Zealand community now. It's free and easy. Just Google Wings Over New Zealand and you'll find the forum. Hi, it's Matt Jolly from warbirdradio.com. Listen, I am thrilled to have Dave Homewood as part of our broadcast family and bring your stories, the stories of the RNZAF, heard right here on Wings Over New Zealand to our global audience. Thanks for listening and hope to hear from you sometime at warbirdradio.com. This is Extended, the ETOPS Aviation Podcast. Here's Peter Johnson. We're in front of the Merlin. Can you tell us a little bit about the aircraft? What aircraft did you fly before? Uh, Sohoi 22. Right, okay. That's quite an interesting aircraft. Mm-hmm. What was that like to fly? Faster. Yeah. <laughs> Gareth Stringer. Make no bones about it. This is still a very capable aircraft. The cockpit's very cramped. You've got leg restraints on. You're sat on a seat that's got explosives in it. Tim Robinson. Uh, also the A400M, got to go inside and uh, have a poke around with. Just uh, taking me on the trip of a lifetime in a F-18F Super Hornet. Aviation-extended.co.uk And remember, there's no E at the beginning of Extended. Extended! Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show. I'm your host, Dave Homewood. Back in 2010, Richard Carstens and I sat down with World War II RNZAF pilot Ken Lee who spent several years as an instructor in the early part of the war before heading to Britain to become a fighter pilot and serving with number 485 New Zealand Squadron. Here's Ken. Well, my name is uh, Kenneth Lee and uh, I was born in Auckland. Um, My uh, father was born in Christchurch, but he was a fairly big family which had come out from England and settled in Christchurch. And my grandfather did reasonably successfully. And they all went back to England when um, most of them were sort of under 10, I suppose. And my father so did uh, spent his childhood in England. And of about eight children, uh, brothers and sisters, he was the only one that ever came back to New Zealand much to the disgust of my uh, one of my aunts when I finally told her. <laughs> but that's another story. Um, and uh, so uh, he, we lived in Auckland. I was born in Auckland. And um, uh, because of, I suppose, my father's background in uh, 
he went to school in Cheltenham College in England and he had ideas that you know you needed to be uh, a boarder at a public school and I was sent to uh, a, a secondary school in Wanganui as a boarder and incidentally as I told you met quite a number of my uh, school friends later on in the Air Force but that's another story um, and uh, uh, here we lived in originally in Remuera and then moved here when I was went to secondary school and um, after leaving school I started the engineering degree uh, but I was very interested in flying probably more than the academic uh, pursuit and finished up in the civil reserve but neglecting some of my more academic uh, demands and uh, suffering for it afterwards by having to complete it after the war. Well, I, uh, I was uh, an ardent model builder as a child and uh, both um, flying models and, you know, non-flying. And uh, I carried that on into my sort of uh, teenage years. And I certainly had a strong interest in flying and uh, I looked upon the Civil Reserve as an opportunity to learn to fly rather as any commitment to, uh, uh, to any Air Force. Uh, and, uh, but nevertheless, it uh, caught me up at the time and uh, that's where I started the Air Force career. I joined the Air Force, well, close to the Air Force, as I was telling you about the Civil Reserve before, in about 1938. I entered the Air Force proper in um, October 39 and uh, left it, I suppose, to the Reserve at the end of the war, about December um, uh, 40, 45. And, um, I completed after that um, uh, what I had begun before the war, which was uh, to looking for an engineering degree, and I completed that, and then to start with I went back into the technical branch of the Air Force, and I was in with them for about six or seven years. Uh, and I finished up in uh, command of the uh, engineering squadron at Ahakia, as a squadron leader at that time and that's when I left the Air Force and went other ways. Most of my uh, early three years was on instructing because we were kept behind from original service training um, for training as flying instructors and I spent time mostly to start with on Tiger Moths um, at Tyree and then at Fanuapai and when they closed Fanuapai after the Japanese came in, I went back to the FTS at Woodburn on Harvards and Oxfords. And that was when, at the end of 1942, when we were released to go to operational. And uh, they actually asked us where we wanted to go, and I suggested England because of a lot of background family that interested me, quite apart from the fact of the operations. And uh, I went to England for uh, OTU training 
and because I knew the then CEO of 485 Squadron, I wrote to him asking if there's any chance to get on the squadron, which he obviously achieved, if that's the right word. And um, but he was so I finally went to 485 Squadron in about um, uh, May, I think it was 1943, and that was the only operational squadron that I served on. I did a. Um, uh, one uh, tour there, and which included the time of the uh, Normandy invasion, and um, after which, when I went on rest, I uh, had a job with the um, um, De Havilland Aircraft Company, uh, doing some basic uh, uh, flying there, original. Uh, contra-rotating um, propeller, which they were building under license from the American crowd of Hamiltons in competition with uh, Bristol and Rolls-Royce uh, Rotol, who had the ear of the ministry and finally got the uh, development of what turned out to be the Rotol contra-rotating props which we finished the post-war aircraft. Can you take us right back to the beginning with the Civil Reserve? Well, uh, the, uh, the whole idea of the Civil Reserve, that you were given a certain amount of flying, about 60 hours in the first year, uh, at one of the appropriate aero clubs that were approved. And uh, mine, of course, was the Auckland Aero Club, which was then at Mangary, not in its present form. and. Uh, uh, there was a well-known chief flying instructor there that you may have heard of called Dave Allen and uh, he was well known as a uh, man who turned on a um, exhibition every uh, other Sunday you know and people used to go out there and watch him doing falling leaves and uh, um, uh, aerobatics which uh, intrigued me and uh, that was my first sort of interest in actual flying. And when I was in the Civil Reserve, there were three flying instructors there. Dave Allen was the chief. There was a chap called Brian Haybittle and another one called Robinson. I can't remember his Christian name now, but uh, Brian Haybittle was my instructor. Uh, and I can't remember in detail how long it took me, but I finally finished up with a, a test from Dave Allen, which uh, put a rather different complexion because I made a, a mess of the original landing. And he said, I've got it. And he immediately rammed up the throttle, went across the aerodrome at about five feet, did a steep turn backwards, uh, still at about 20 or 30 feet, uh, climbed up round, did another steep turn, started throttled back on the glide and said, you've got to try again. You can imagine the sort of uh, <laughs> state of mind I was in at the time, but I managed to crawl back onto the ground anyway. And that uh, they sent me solo shortly after that, so in a, trust, a very trusting man. But... Uh, so that was the sort of flying that I did for the first year, which was 1938.
which included the usual, I can't remember how many hours I did before solo, I think it was about seven or eight, something like that. And uh, we went through the usual stuff, doing sort of cross country and uh, New Plymouth or somewhere. And uh, that was about it. And then, uh, of course, in 39, um, I'd, um, they get, would give us another 20 hours on the original 60. And I can't remember now whether I completed all that, but I was, that was the situation I was in when war started. And uh, we were called up, as I say, in October 39 and immediately went to the ground training school, which was at uh, where, uh, which was Levin, and uh, all those people who had been, some were, who had been accepted for short service commissions in the RAF or in the New Zealand Air Force, and others who had completed the, the civil reserve training or had completed some of it, uh, formed the first course at um, uh, Woodburn, and they were divided into courses one and courses two, depending on whether they'd finished their training or whether they hadn't. And so we went from there in what was then the accepted service training, which was the beginning of the Empire Air Training Scheme, with which we were a part, with Canada and Australia, I think, and uh, the UK. And from there on, we followed the uh, appropriate uh, training scheme. Am I right in thinking you, you were in the first draft, the first course of that? Right? The first course under that scheme, yes. There had been other uh, who were people who were, uh, during training, were acting pilot officers. And, um, but under this air training scheme, they had a new system where everyone was brought in initially with non-commissioned rank of leading aircraftsmen, uh, which caused those people who'd gone through the other introduction to the Air Force to look at, uh, look at us askance. And uh, because at one stage during the training you actually uh, achieved your wings. And I remember one chap who had uh, RAF uh, background coming along and he said, come and have, let me have a look at you. He said, a leading aircraftsman with wings, I've never heard of it. And he was most, or most offended, I think. But uh, however, we survived that. So, um, because you've been in the Civil Reserve and already knew how to fly the, the lighter aircraft, when you went in, did you go straight onto the Vincents? Yes. Uh, no, I'm sorry. We went to... Um, um, New Plymouth first, and did a short refresher course on uh, all the stuff that had been collected all around the place, gypsy moths, uh, uh, tigers, and moth majors, and uh, bits and pieces from all the aero clubs, which had been assembled there to do a refresher course of about 10 hours, whereas those people who hadn't finished their civil reserve training did the full 50 hour and that's why they formed the second course, and we split with uh, uh, the first. So what? What next? You've got you got your wings. How did that feel? Well, uh, a matter of a certain pride, I suppose. Uh, 
but uh, it was a rather unusual circumstance in that we were a, a new breed uh, in being uh, uh, very lowly non-commissioned non uh, uh, people and also we had a, a famous ex-World War I uh, pilot who was the commanding officer of Woodburn which was Caldwell, Grid Caldwell you may have heard of and he uh, was extremely, uh, for some reason or other, almost proud of us, I felt, and uh, we did the most unusual things uh, uh, that probably would have been frowned upon in later times, but we had a, a very good time and uh, well looked after uh, in those days. And those were then, I think, confined to the same sort of thing going on at Wigram uh, from people who had done the same thing at Tyree and uh, uh, those formed the uh, those emerging from the first seven what they called war courses uh, we were the first and they had the same thing uh, for seven courses and then they opened up Harewood and Fanuapai and uh, that was about all, and they had then four EFTSs, as they were called, the elementary schools, and they started numbering again as 1A, 1B, 1C, and D. And I think uh, you've already met um, um, Harvey Sweetman. Uh, he was the last of the seven so-called war courses, as I remember. Oh, well, I don't remember, but as I know. Um, and then they started again with uh, the four different EFTSs, renumbering. And what did you think of, um, how, how did you feel that there was a war breaking out here and you were likely to, or you were going to be posted to it? What were your feelings about that? Well, of course, I don't know. It's pretty hard to describe, I suppose. Um, uh, I suppose that in the years, the few years leading up to 39, it became fairly obvious that uh, something was going to crack somewhere or later and uh, it was obviously a possibility. As I say, I don't think it was the main concern at the time of joining the Civil Reserve where the main aim was to learn to fly. But uh, it was fairly obvious that uh, we had that um, obligation to fulfil and unfortunately there were four of us who were kept back uh, to be trained as flying instructors. There were 17 in the course and I'm sorry to say that a very large number of them disappeared rather smartly in the early days where they were flying um, Blenheims, uh, Wellingtons, uh, what were the other, Hamdens, and there was another one, they, they were sort of medium bomber stuff and they got a very bad casualty list and it didn't last very long I'm afraid. So uh, the mere fact that I was kept back there was probably <laughs> instrumental in my being here now I should think, but that was part of the deal.
So describe being a being a flying instructor then, or all the training you had to do to be one, and then and then what you would do as a, as a training instructor. Well, uh, it'd be difficult to go through a description of the sort of training program as such, but um, in uh, most of at the beginning anyway, came in for three months in each category. Uh, they did, I think they did three months the initial ground training, three months in the EFTS and three months in the ATSs, which were Woodburn, Wigram. Um, and usually the instructor, well I'll take Fanuapai, uh, there were, uh, this was the airfield which had intended to accept the Wellingtons that were being bought by the New Zealand Air Force at that stage and of course they never eventuated because they were required elsewhere but all the hangars had been built for them and they are the reason for the concrete hangars that you see there now and uh, we had one of those hangars was divided into two flights, one at each side, A and B flights, which had their own um, uh, their own set of instructors, with a chief instructor in each. who was probably a flight lieutenant or something who'd been either had Air Force RAF experience or Air Force experience, or possibly just uh, long Aero Club experience as instructors, you know, in civil. And uh, we would be given people emerging from the ground training schools and probably have about uh, three or four, um, those two of them halfway through and two of them beginning as it were. So you'd have four people probably on the go, some of them doing elementary dual before solo and some of them doing experience in, um, uh, well, perhaps a bit of aerobatics, forced landings, uh, the usual sort of stuff that I find it hard to remember now. But it was, uh, it was all pretty, um, fairly demanding, but uh, also a bit boring, uh, although there was some uh, cause of interest in one got a certain amount of uh, pleasure out of it, uh, seeing the people coming on and uh, succeeding or not. <laughs> there wasn't much uh, leeway given to the people who had difficulty, I'm afraid, in those days. If they didn't uh, look like going solo in a reasonable time, I'm afraid they were passed out to uh, observers or air gunners or something of that sort. Finally, those who finished passed on to the FTSs at Woodburn and Wigram to finish their course. Or then later on, uh, many of them were uh, transferred to Canada to finish their advanced training in Canada. And in fact, when I finally left Woodburn to go overseas, I was given uh, control of about 160 of these people who were on the way to Canada and we all shared the same troop ship, which was one of the old Matson liners, actually, uh, which had been a hospital ship as well. 
and I had this 116 mob uh, to go over and also take them up. And we were supposed to go to San Francisco, but because of a bit of a scare on the way, which I don't know what it was for, we went to San Diego instead and had to take this brood up, um, up the coast by rail and then to finally to, um, um, to Canada and across by uh, CNR actually, across Canada. We dropped them off somewhere on the way, I can't remember exactly where. And there are some people who had finished their training in New Zealand and there were about six who were either sergeant pilots or pilot officers uh, who were going on to England. And uh, we carried on after the dropping of this brood of uh, 160 off and uh, through to Halifax where we were taken across the Atlantic on the Queen Elizabeth actually uh, with about uh, 19,000 other people. Which, uh, <laughs> was, uh, they had uh, two meals a day uh, and there were four sittings I think on each meal and they had what they called a boat drill where everybody was forced out onto the um, uh, boat decks and um, uh, with about, uh, it was a matter of getting out the actual exit uh, and squeezing your shoulders together and standing there uh, while you did what was supposed to be a boat drill. I'm not quite sure if it's been an actual necessity. But that only took us sort of five or six days to get across the Atlantic. They reckon she was doing, they did the weaving all the way across at high speed. And on the first night out, everything turned very cold. We finished up somewhere up near Greenland, I think, or Iceland. Uh, after doing what they said, uh, the crew said was uh, 33 knots during the, during the night, which was fairly fast going. Anyway, I'm sorry, I'm uh, wandering around. No, that's a, is anything memorable uh, on, the, on the journey at all? Uh, well, of course, the, uh, the living conditions were memorable in themselves, but uh, no, nothing, of, uh, nothing untoward happened. There wasn't much that chased you at 33 knots. And except on the cruise before with the Queen Mary, which had been coming across from England, it was the occasion where you may have heard of it, where she, uh, a crew, one of the light cruisers, which was escorting, tried to cut across in front of her and misjudged her speed and was cut in two by the Queen Mary and just disappeared, all hands. And that was about two weeks before the, our trip the other way. But we didn't repeat the one of the guys I interviewed a couple of months ago was on board when it went through it. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. I see what he'd be coming, I thought it was coming the other way. I may be wrong. He, he was Fleet Air Army, he was coming from England to America. Oh, to I see, Australia. yes, he was. Yes, I yeah. thought it was coming the other way. Yeah. Mm. So, <laughs> that was, uh, <laughs> but uh, no, it was memorable to the extent that it was so uh, squeezed up, you hardly had room to move, there were about 16 in the two-berth cabin, 
uh, sleeping in some of them are three three deep and uh, you only got two meals a day which is probably all you needed but uh, that was only five days so the whole trip I think took about not much over a month and what what happens when you arrive in Britain well we arrived in Britain in a, uh, an area of fog at the entrance to uh, the Clyde uh, before we could get up to um, um, wherever the landing was can't remember now uh, but we uh, it took us about all night to get off to be unloaded because you know you don't move 19,000 people in a hurry but we all got onto trains and uh, it took us about two days to winding through trains down to the south coast to the reception centres, which in our case was um, Bournemouth. And uh, we stayed there for a couple of weeks, I suppose, waiting to uh, transfer to operational training, uh, which was a bit boring and uh, the change of diet where everybody queued up at the uh, at the uh, meal times and uh, very quick to <laughs> get up whatever was offering especially butter but uh, the rationing was quite a uh, uh, well quite a momentous uh, change in uh, lifestyles of course So that uh, continued until we went. Uh, we were actually posted because the OTUs were full at that stage. They gave us what the uh, well uh, more preliminary were. We went in our case to Norfolk for about a month, I think, uh, and flying mainly Miles Masters uh, because they couldn't didn't have room for us in the OTUs. But finally, we went after the Masters, went to OTU, in my case, in Wales, where we did our training on, on Spitfire, uh, Spit 1s and 2s and so forth in those days. Whereas the main uh, operational squadrons at that stage, which was late 1942, or about Christmas 42, was um, uh, were mainly equipped with five five Bs, and they were in the stage where they were becoming a rather um, overcome by the new German aircraft, which were the one nineties, the um, which had were in fact uh, rather superior, and not until the uh, we changed over to the nines that uh, we were really had comparable performance. What was your first impression of flying the Spitfire? Well, uh, obviously uh, intrigued to <laughs> the high performance uh, which uh, of anything that we'd been used to before, especially, especially a Wildebeest or a Vincent. <laughs> Can't imagine anything anything more different. 
but however, uh, you know, uh, most of the people who were arriving there from straight from initial training had probably done about 150 hours. Whereas, of course, I was in a slightly different situation or with different aircraft, but I'd done actually 1,700 hours by the time I arrived at NOTU. And uh, uh, so it was a little different. Uh, I suppose I picked it up a bit more quickly than some of the others. But it was certainly a, a major <laughs> experience and uh, obviously a first introduction to the flying of a really beautiful aircraft, there's no question about it. It was a real pleasure to fly, which some of the later marks were still uh, exciting to fly, but they weren't, as, in my mind, as pleasurable to fly, especially in aerobatics and that sort of thing, which I, I was very interested in. I was going to say, you probably had um, more hours than many of the instructors at OTU. Oh, yes, yes. In fact, <laughs> the instructor I had that I had at um, uh, what they called this AFU, where we were flying masters, was a chap by the name of Lee, but he spelt it differently. And uh, he was a, um, a flying officer as my instructor, and he, I, don't, I don't know how many hours he had, but he certainly wasn't uh, as much as me. And he said to me, um, well, there were three classes of master. There was one with the big Bristol engine, there was one with the um, American engine, and one with the Rolls-Royce Kestrel. And the one with the Bristol engine was, to my mind, overpowered. It wasn't a pleasant aircraft to fly, and it flew all right. But uh, this fellow, Lee, said, uh, he said, you've done a fair amount of flying. And I said, oh yes, quite a bit. He said, you've done quite a lot of aerobatics. I said, yes, quite a bit. He said, I, I've tried aerobatics in this thing. He said, every time I try to do a, every time I try to do a uh, loop, it rolls off the top. He said, would you have a go? <laughs> Which I did, and sure enough, I did too. I went through what I thought was a normal loop and I just got round to the top with no nothing doing from me, it, it rolled out. And uh, which of course annoyed me. <laughs> and I had another go with a bit more speed and all this sort of thing and managed to get round all right. But uh, anyway, uh, well, uh, um, the CEO of uh, 485 at that stage was Reg Grant, who had started in number three course. So he'd actually been there before I left uh, at Woodburn. So I did know him slightly, not well. But he broke his leg and he finished up by having to stay behind until uh, somewhere around Harvey Sweetman's time, I think, about uh, course six, something of that sort. But he uh, did very well over there and he finished up at the time I arrived as CEO of 485 when they were at um, West Hampnett, uh, one of the satellites of uh, Tangmere. And uh, so anyway, I, uh, I wrote to him from the ATU and said, uh, was there any chance of getting on to 485? Um, I don't think he even replied, probably too busy, but uh, 
he must have done something about it. But anyway, I did. I arrived there, but he had already gone somewhere else. But he was instrumental, obviously, in getting me on 485. Uh, whether that was a good thing or not, I don't know. But uh, <laughs> it was the only thing I knew about at the time. Uh, lots of people later said they much preferred to get on to uh, uh, an international uh, squadron, you know, rather than a um, national squadron. And maybe, as we said before, probably some of your uh, problems go along uh, country in <laughs> the country you come from uh, keep keep with you as you uh, go together whereas uh, having a new breed in different uh, countries may have been more uh, more exciting and uh, acceptable but uh, what was the base like what was the the living conditions and the the, the general uh, in the squadron yeah well, we were living in a uh, place that was called, if I remember, Fish Cottage. <laughs> we were dotted around in sort of local um, uh, uh, cottages and so forth. There was no formal base there, like Tangmere, for instance, or any of the old uh, uh, airfields, uh, RAF airfields. It was purely a satellite. And uh, just... Uh, they put us up wherever there was. Uh, we moved on to a place called Merton, which was another satellite, uh, and a rather more, um, uh, what shall I call it, a country mansion type of thing that had been taken over by the Air Force. It was a little more, a little more civilized, perhaps. But, uh, and, and what were your first sort of um, tasks, or what? How did you, what happened when you arrived in the squadron? What did you get sort of do from there? Well, I suppose <laughs> uh, I was a little bit strange, I suppose, because most people uh, arriving on uh, posting to a squadron, especially the National Squadron, were people who'd arrived from ATUs in the normal way and probably they'd be ranked as flight sergeants, flight sergeants, or a few of them pilot officers with about, um, or anything from 150 to 200 hours flying. Whereas I, at that stage, was a flight lieutenant, which was uh, obviously supernumerary, and uh, I had something like 1,700 hours flying with no operational experience at all. So uh, I didn't quite know how to behave and they didn't know quite how to treat me, I don't think. So uh, things were a little strained for a while, but uh, gradually got over it all right. And, uh, uh, but it was always there that I was in a slightly strange position. Um, uh, resented? Uh, maybe, I don't know. But uh, I've survived. Many of them have too. So. And what about your first? Uh, oh, you got any questions? Eh? I was going to say the same thing. First sort of combat action. Yeah. When? When? How did you start on ops with the squadron? What? What? How did they ease you in? Did they ease you into it? Did they throw you in the deep end? Well, yes. Yeah, so I think I was told. Um, 
that for the first operation, which was probably um, escorting a medium bombers, that was mainly the function at the time, where it was in uh, the beginning of 1943, most of the um, sort of Battle of Britain type of stuff was over and the German, uh, the German Air Force was uh, much more engaged in Russia than they were in Europe and uh, they didn't really react to anything from Britain unless there was uh, uh, something um, offensive going on. I mean, you had to drop a few bombs or something of that sort. So they did this by sending medium bombers like Mitchells and uh, uh, Marauders and Bostons and in anything up to from 6 to 12 group, escorted by uh, anything up to sometimes even 10 squadrons of, uh, of fighters uh, based in close escort, which were there close to the bombers, escort cover who sort of looked after things a bit higher, and then the high cover which were at that stage when I'm talking about they had just got the nines which did the uh, the high cover, especially the nine A's, were mainly the uh, um, <laughs> northern Europe uh, Norwegians, Norwegian squadrons, who were at North Weald, and uh, then they would have uh, squadrons going in before, and squadrons coming in afterwards <laughs> to try and clean up. So when you added it all up, there might be um, 10 squadrons involved for 10 aircraft, <laughs> uh, which means 120. Well, even more than that, some of them later on, these huge big wings, they would have 250 aircraft on the one operation. And, only about a dozen of them would be actually uh, offensive in terms of bombing or doing anything of that nature. And the whole intention was to encourage uh, the um, German Air Force to react. And either they didn't react at all, or and their idea was as soon as the radar, as soon as us. Uh, squadrons had appeared on radar, they would take off and go inland, climbing, aiming to get above everything, including the high cover, and come back in over where they might be near the target, and then the usual approach was to dive through, having a lash at anything that was passing at the time, uh, and going down almost to sea level, especially where they had probably better performance in comparison with the high cover and back to where they'd come from, <laughs> uh, hopefully intact. And uh, uh, our uh, problem then was to try to get some contact of uh, as they passed through, more or less, which was usually fairly fleeting and uh, mostly unsuccessful.
but that was the nature of the operations that we had at the time. And uh, when we were on fives with um, five Bs at that stage, and um, uh, usually on close cover, um, or either close escort or escort cover, which was usually at about 15,000 feet or something of that nature, 12 to 15,000 feet, whereas the high cover was probably up at 30, 32,000, something of that sort. But uh, anyway, in those days, they still pursued this line of stern weaving stuff. And you had the uh, number one, uh, the four flights um, going out in reasonably close formation uh, to uh, assemble somewhere on the south coast of England on, at low level and form up there, uh, it, meet the... Um, uh, the bomber force so there were a number of squadrons milling around together which got quite a uh, uh, quite a mess uh, before setting off at low level across the channel and then climbing to go across the uh, French coast and uh, in reasonable formation but they uh, had this when they finally got across and started to climb. They opened out a bit, but they kept the four or the three flights in line astern with weaving backwards and forwards, which was a, not a very, it was a sort of a defensive situation, which wasn't very appealing. And also it was um, wasted a lot of fuel and uh, it was a mess, which uh, finally, when uh, what should have happened earlier, and they had this idea of the <coughs> open formation with what they called finger fours, where <coughs> the uh, three flights were probably separated by <coughs> by um, you know a couple of hundred meters or more and uh, open and sort of looking across at each other a much more defensive and offensive uh, situation. How long does this sort of cat and mouse stuff with the Luftwaffe go on where you're trying to tease them into um, reacting or... Um... Well, of course, it was uh, from the beginning of 1943 um, it was the main operation of fighter command, really, of the you know, 11 group. Uh, there wasn't anything like the uh, reaction that they'd had in, in um, Battle of Britain style. Um, they had at least comparable performance at almost every altitude, uh, and therefore they could be more aggressive both in out-climbing. Um, the only um, advantage, perhaps, that the 190s would have had would be on their diving speed. And that's more or less what they did. They would dive through these gaggles of aircraft and hope to catch something on the way down. And the... Uh, the Spitfire 9, although they could outmaneuver them and outclimb them, 
I found it hard to outdive them, and most of the uh, contacts were achieved by simply trying to follow down uh, these uh, 190s as they were diving through. And <clears throat> that's, of course, what happened as far as I was concerned. Uh, as we uh, came to about well, the middle of 1943, we moved from the Tangmere sector on five Bs and were uh, given nines and sent to Biggin Hill. And that's when uh, had the uh, period in Biggin Hill under um, John Checkett. And that was a more active period where it was more aggressive and uh, to some uh, unfortunately uh, I missed a lot of that because for some reason or other they posted me to this um, fighter leaders course which I think was a well uh, frankly I think it was a bit of a waste of time but uh, <laughs> it uh, served a purpose I suppose but of course the tactics then changed because um, they had the Germans had aircraft which were more competitive, and uh, the RAF had aircraft which were much more equivalent in performance. So there was a little bit more reaction to the same sort of thing uh, taking part, which we took part in from Biggin Hill, as we'd done before, but uh, in a different mode. We were more. Um, perhaps a high cover or at least escort cover and that sort of thing. And there was more action, although most of the action was um, the same sort of thing, diving through from uh, superior height and mainly the, the leaders of the squadron, the CO and the flight commanders at that stage would have the advantage of being in a position to follow whereas the, um, uh, the others would tend to be left behind. So um, there were a lot more um, actual uh, active um, behaviour, uh, more particularly checkets did very well, but there were also a lot more losses <coughs> and these finished up by uh, sending us um, to uh, a rest period to reform in Scotland via um, um, Hornchurch, uh, had a period in Hornchurch on the way which included this test with this uh, um, floating airfield. Where they were going to invade uh, on first thoughts would be confined to the Channel uh, coast of France uh, because we only, all our aircraft were defensive, uh, their endurance was such that you couldn't expect them to go far afield and yet on the other hand they'd have to be present, or at least they thought so, and uh, so they were entertaining the idea of having a floating pontoon type of airfield which they could tow into place um, anywhere they chose, which was in range of, you know, a fighter aircraft, 
and you could then base them there and have refueling and all that sort of stuff and mm. a certain amount of repair work on these things and uh, you could tow them away or uh, twist them around into yeah. wind and so forth and what they did uh, involving us was to test out these things by setting out a pattern by putting sort of um, tent uh, pieces along the ground in the shape of this thing and uh, on one of the airfields and we had a um, uh, a um, see uh, um, what do you call the bloke that uh, waves them in you know batsman batsman yeah sorry <laughs> I forget a few things occasionally I'm sorry but um, and he came along and gave us a bit of practice on deck landing approaches and all this sort of nonsense mm. and in fact some of them uh, did actually do a deck landing on uh, one of the small aircraft carriers Argus oh. Uh, but the main thing was that they set this out in this case uh, finally on Ford, which is near Tangmere, and uh, uh, they marked it out with all these the markers. And they had four squadrons, including us. Uh, there was a, um, um, a naval uh, squadron and uh, two fives. Uh, Spitfives and our own and we were assembled on this place and tried to go around and of course all the big uh, uh, knees came down from London or elsewhere including uh, our revered Prime Minister Winston ah. Churchill and it was reputed that he was one of the main uh, you know uh, originators of this and um, Anyway, we uh, tried uh, this and they timed everything on how, to, uh, how we could get off and so forth. Um, anyway, I won't waste any more time, but the idea was that that uh, description of that, which in, incidentally uh, damn nearly killed me much more than anything else on the ground, ah. which would have been rather uh, a letdown. Which that's the quite the word, is it? Um, but uh, that was why I remember it fairly clearly. Oh wow! You had a bit near, nearly had a prang the two. Uh, not nearly, no. <laughs> Very definitely, oh, uh, because oops. there were these aircraft. Well, I can show you what the setup was like. There we are. That was the type of oh, thing. Oh right, I see. Where you had a taxiway and the takeoff part, and then a second taxiway which could be used mm. for repair shops and all that sort of thing, and that was all floating, and um, uh, aircraft parked along the taxiways. They had to come round one after the other and take off, and uh, go either back to the parking place or round to the repair shop if they could get there. It Quite a genius, isn't it? Um, and those things were about uh, around about 600 metres long, which is not uh, not much uh, safety margin. And of course, there are all the problems that if uh, you know damaged aircraft and mm. all this sort of nonsense. And if they damaged one, what do you do with it? Do you push it over the side? Mm. Or? 
we were actually called upon to join these other squadrons to try this idea of the um, floating airfield laid out uh, with patterns on, they did it with some sort of stuff like American cloth, you know, and tent pegs uh, holding it all down, showing where you had to taxi. And they had aircraft uh, parked uh, pointing inwards along the uh, uh, taxiway and uh, the um, fleet air arm actually provided most of the uh, support work with starter trolleys and all this sort of thing <coughs> and they were supposed to marshal these people on and you turned out onto the taxiway and went down, turned onto the main uh, runway and took off and they you know, give the times that it took to do this. But um, uh, the Spitfire particularly, it was very difficult to see straight ahead and had to try and wander a little bit looking out first one side and then the other and at the same time there was a pressure of people waving you on uh, sort of get moving. Um, and so you were taxiing fairly fast and uh, fairly close together and they only took about uh, the um, naval uh, squadron, it only, their 12 aircraft, it only took them about a minute and a half to get off. We were a bit uh, slower but um, uh, the point was that there were obviously, uh, you had to take notice of what the people waving you on were telling you to do, so you were taxing rather blindly. But anyway, uh, in my particular case, uh, I forget where I was, more or less in the middle, some had about six had gone off beforehand and I was turning out on the runway. And as I opened up the throttle to get a fair bit of acceleration, so there was quite a lot of throttle opening, <laughs> what had actually happened, I taxied over one of these strips and it rooted it out of the ground and threw it into the prop. <laughs> and that uh, got rid of about uh, one and a half of the propeller blades and obviously I was not uh, uh, taxiing at any great speed after that. And the whole thing was shaking like an earthquake. And uh, I was waving to these people who were waving me on saying, get out of the way, I want to get off. You see, well, that's the sort of thing. What do you do in the actual case? You push it overboard or something like that. But in this case, I was slowed down and the people behind me were waving the next bloke on and the next bloke happened to be Herb uh, uh, Patterson, not John Patterson, but um, uh, another member of the squadron, who uh, dutifully came on at high speed and uh, cut my tail off and chawed uh, <laughs> its way up the thing and uh, the propeller stopped on the uh, arbor plating behind my head. So uh, uh, that was... <laughs> Uh, as near as I ever got to being uh, uh, to being uh, dispatched with, but uh, uh, but uh, the main thing was I think I was therefore responsible 
in this whole enterprise being ditched because I gather that Churchill, who was there watching um, with the many of his uh, senior, probably uh, CNC fighter command and whatnot, and apparently he was so disgusted he pushed off straight away and went back to London and uh, uh, that was the last we ever heard of this uh, thing. So um, I think I might have saved a lot of people a lot of, uh, a lot of problems. <laughs> but anyway, on the other hand, of course, this may have been well known beforehand because obviously it's all very well. You can't keep a thing like that secret. There must have been a lot of spying going on to see how we were preparing for the invasion. And this may have been quite deliberate, saying that this is to give them something to worry about as to where we're going to go, knowing full well that they had no intention of persevering with it. So I, uh, <coughs> and maybe this was one way of um, thwarting Churchill in his plans to uh, give us a floating uh, aerodrome on the, on the west coast of France, perhaps. the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood.